frog in cool water and slowly heat it up, that frog will boil. As veterans, we tell ourselves the lie that we can handle anything. We let the water boil. You are not a frog. If you or a veteran you know needs support, don't wait. Reach out. Find resources at va.gov slash reach. That's va.gov slash reach. Talking to your kids about the dangers of vaping can be hard. Getting them to listen to hot gossip is easy. So here's some drama you could share with your kid. Dude, did you hear about Cassie and Jake? No, but did you hear that vaping can cause irreversible lung damage and nicotine affects brain development? (gasps) Nuh-uh. You don't need to gossip if you want to have an open conversation about vaping. So if you want to get tips on when and how to talk to your kids, visit talkaboutvaping.org. Brought to you by the American Lung Association and the Ad Council. It's 90.1 KPFT. Time to check in with the Ronnie and Tom Show. Uh, that's the Tom and Ronnie show. Now stop that. Doesn't everybody play Babaloo at least once a day? So I was looking at the uh, CD and the title of it is the best of Desi Arnaz. So is what is that a dozen different versions of Babaloo on there? <laughs> Join the fun and the great decades of music. Weekday afternoons, 2 to 4, here on KPFT. I want you uh, to turn your radio up. Welcome to Growing Up in America here on 90.1 FM KPFT Pacifica Radio. Growing Up in America is a segment about our children, public policy, and how we as a city and community take care of all of our kids. Growing Up America is a production of Children at Risk, the voice of Texas Children, a nonprofit organization dedicated to research, public policy, law, and collaborative action on behalf of Texas's youth. Every week we aim to fill these same 60 minutes with lively discussion on the children of Texas with experts on the quality of life for all of our children. We have our regular segments like Thumbs Up, Thumbs Down, Data of the Day, and for today our magic number is 28.1%. 28.1%. What could 28.1% represent? Hmm. I have here in the studio with me Sharon Jones, our Chief Equity Officer at Children at Risk. Do you have any idea what this magic number 28.1% could represent? No, but I am anxious for you to tell us. I'm actually not going <laughs> to tell you. I have no idea either. I can't imagine what 28.1% could represent. Maybe it's the number of children here in Texas uh, that are looking forward to being public policy representatives later in life. I don't know, but we'll find out later in the day. Um, we hope that everyone tuning in right now will stay with us throughout this conversation because, as you know, it gets better with each guest that comes on. We're going to start with our thumbs up, thumbs down today, and our topic of the day is community gardens. Great, great community gardens. And I guess the question is, are they an answer to food insecurity? Are they an answer to food insecurity? I Mm. think they can be one answer to food insecurity. One answer. Say more. Well, you know, there there are many neighborhoods in Texas and, and, you know, here in Houston, many neighborhoods locally that are um, considered food deserts, meaning, you know, within a mile or, or is it two mile radius? There are no access to fresh foods. You know, many of us are accustomed to you know, getting in our car, hopping on our bicycle, going to the nearest HEB or uh, Kroger and finding um, fresh foods for us to prepare for our families. And there are many families who live in places where they just don't have easy access to that. You know, of course, you know, there's always access to fast food and snacks and uh, unhealthy things. But for kids and families, you know, we should all have access to be able to prepare a fresh meal and to eat as healthy as possible. And that's that's um, not possible for so many families. So community gardens can be a place where um, families can plant seeds and reap the benefits of the 
fresh produce that grows, can share with their neighbors, can teach our their families and kids about sustainability. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's I think it's a great thing. Yeah, I like that point about that that interaction that happens between children and parents when they're accessing the garden. You know, there are some people that believe that these are not an answer to food insecurity. You know, they bring up the environmental impacts, you Mm -hmm. know, the additional fertilizers and water usage. Are these a reasonable use of our land? Um, They also bring up accessibility. You know, how many of the households that truly are facing food insecurity are accessing nutritional food or have awareness that the community gardens exist in order to expand their options for food. Yeah, I get that. I think it's incumbent upon us to, um, you know, learn how to have gardens that are sustainable and that don't take away from our um, safe environment. Um, An example of that, I know that um, Atherton Elementary, which is in Fifth Ward, is that neighborhood is smack dab in the middle of a food desert. You know, there, there are certainly um, fast foods and, you know, small shops and bodegas, but um, there's nowhere to just go and get fresh vegetables. And so um, an organization that, that I uh, partnered with or, or volunteered with, Girl Trek, um, did some walks in the neighborhood and, and um, were contacted to help fund a garden on the rooftop of Atherton Elementary. And so they had a science teacher there who, you know, jumped at the idea to teach his students about sustainability and caring for the environment and, and growing fresh foods and eating fresh, healthy foods. And so they were able to establish a rooftop garden where parents on the weekend can go with their kids and uh, implement the lessons learned in this science teacher's class about how to grow and harvest and prepare um, healthy foods. They were growing things like Swiss chard and uh, cabbage and uh, broccoli. And, you know, I think that it made the kids more excited to eat the things that they grew. I mean, you know, it's one thing to, to put broccoli in front of a kid, but if he has some buy-in into, you know, I planted this, I watered this, and I grew it, and now it's on my plate, that's a, that's a different experience for kids that, that need to learn how to how to eat healthy. And, you know, it's also a great science science project. What a beautiful way to bring the classroom into the home environment. Right? Absolutely. Child also gets an opportunity to lead the parents in a learning experience. Mm-hmm. It's know? also great exercise. You know, a few years ago, I planted a garden with my kids thinking that it would be just something kind of casual that we did for fun. That's a workout. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. All of the digging, all of the moving of the soil, yes. the bending down. Yes. Everything that you have it to was do. Not, it was not as glamorous as I imagined. You know, I, I grew up with grandparents who always had fruit trees and vegetables growing in their, in their uh, yard. And, you know, Saturdays were spent snapping peas. And, you know, it's a bonding experience as well, you know, with kids and families to, to you know, garden and then harvest. Wonderful. Well, we would love to hear your opinion. Thumbs up or thumbs down. Do you believe that community gardens are truly an answer to food insecurity? We're going to leave that question open as we move on to our first guest. We have Dr. Bob joining us uh, to give us a recap. At Children at Risk, we have rally days scheduled throughout the spring to help us move forward some policy suggestions and get awareness about what we're fighting for at the Capitol. So, Dr. Bob, can you let us know what happened on the south steps of the Capitol yesterday afternoon? Yeah, Naomi. How you doing, Naomi? So good to hear you. I'm doing great, Dr. Bob. Excellent. Yeah, so uh, yesterday there was a little inclement weather as we did this big rally. So this is a rally for human trafficking, the idea of uh, ending human trafficking in our state. And so the rally moved inside, right? So we're inside the rotunda. And I know you've been in there, Naomi. So it's like uh, it, it was like the voice of God when I stood in the middle of the rotunda and I started yelling, stop trafficking now. It was uh, It was sort of fantastic. But we had all the crowd was in there. Uh, I'm going to say there are probably about 100 people. Uh, we, we had expected more, but because of that bad weather that we had here in Houston and also in Austin, uh, but still 100 was a good number, especially inside that rotunda. And uh, uh, all talking about this idea that we have too much trafficking in our state. As you know, Texas is one of the leaders in trafficking. It's not something we want to be uh, number one in. And so... Um, 
we basically brought partners together. Uh, we uh, we had a little invocation there, and uh, uh, and then the the big thing is that we had uh, legislators come in and sort of talk about trafficking, and then we went up to uh, the press room and we did a big uh, press conference and this with this idea that we have lots of key pieces of legislation in our state right now uh, that we're looking at to end trafficking, and so. Uh, it, it was a, it was a it was a big day, right? And uh, uh, and it was a fun day, right? To be able to be there in the Capitol, uh, yelling "Stop trafficking now!" Awesome. That's glad to hear you had such a great t- turnout. Can you highlight for us one of those policy moves that we're looking at that we believe will really make a dent in ending trafficking? Yeah, uh, two things that I think are noteworthy, Naomi. One is that. Uh, um, during uh, uh, the twenty the t- 2020 legislative session, one of the really substantial pieces of legislation that we passed was this idea that if you purchased uh, uh, a child or a young woman or a young man uh, for you know for prostitution purposes, trafficking purposes, but they were trafficked, uh, you are now a first-time offender. You're eligible for, eligible for a jail felony. And Texas was the first state that did this, right? This whole idea of really going uh, out of the way to go after, to end demand for trafficked uh, children and tra- trafficked men, young men and women. And uh, so the idea is continuing to strengthen that, right? To continue to move towards this idea that we want to end demand in our state. And then as part of that ending of demand, we have all sorts of things going on. Uh, and one of those is really getting rid of, if you go into some illicit massage parlors or some of these uh, bars that are sort of trafficking central, they all have these, they're called white label ATMs, these money, you know, where you just sort of get money out. And it's a way of laundering money. And so one of the things we want to do is outlaw or license those so that we can track the money that goes through those ATMs. And uh, if you go to your Wells Fargo or your... Uh, Chase Bank ATM, those are licensed. And so what we're trying to do is get these unlicensed ATM under regulation, and that will go a long way towards regulating crime. Another thing we're do- doing is working with rideshare companies to do better training and to make them aware of what's happening. That's another big thing, and we're partnering with the, the rideshares on this to not make it onerous for them, but to help us in the fight against trafficking. So these are big things, and, and it, was a, it was a great day really bringing people together. It's hard to say, right? There's not a lot of opposition to being anti-human trafficking, but uh, unfortunately there's still a lot of demand in our state. There's still a lot of guys that are, you know, buying traf- traffic victims in the state of Texas. Hey, Dr. Bob, this is, this is Sharon. Tell us a little bit yeah. about the, um, the relationship that we have with the rideshare companies and the great response that we've gotten from them in terms of um, getting, getting training to their drivers. Yeah, I, I think there was a little suspicion there to begin with, Sharon, right, in terms of uh, our, you know, what are you, you going to make regulations for us? Are you going to make it harder for us to do business? But the idea was for us really to partner with them uh, so that they can help us sort of shape this this legislation so that uh, riders, uh, drivers are trained on, you know, to, to understand who in the backseat might be a trafficked victim uh, so that they can act accordingly. Uh, and that's an important thing, right, sort of being right on the front line of identifying some of these victims of human trafficking, because, frankly, uh, uh, these ride shares have the potential and probably have been used to uh, send uh, trafficking victims to people that are purchasing them. And so we want them to be sort of our partners in the fight against trafficking. And uh, I, I have to give it to them. You know, they since they figured out what we wanted, what we really wanted, they really worked really well with us. And so uh, groups like Uber, you know, we're really excited that, that they want to partner with us in the fight against trafficking. For those of us who aren't as tied to the political nature of this debate, where are some places that we can kind of keep our eyes open for potential trafficking activity? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of myths around trafficking. And I think a couple of weeks on the weeks ago on the show, Naomi, we talked about this is that uh, uh, trafficking activity happens in Texas a lot of times because we have this broken foster care system where these a lot of these, Kids come out of the foster care system or in the foster care system. 
And uh, because we don't really have a good infrastructure with them, they sort of fall through the cracks and they end up being lured under false pretenses into uh, uh, by a trafficker into a life of prostitution. And then there's also one of the other things that, that we know is that uh, uh, runaways, you know, throwaway kids are also quite susceptible to uh, being uh, part of trafficking. And, and one of the other things I talked about at our press conference yesterday is that this is something that affects all communities. You know, every once in a while, I hear someone say, oh, I have a beautiful daughter and I live in the suburbs and I'm really worried. You know, the sort of this whole idea uh, from the movie Taken, right, that, that those are the kids that are going to be taken. But the fact of the matter is that it's our vulnerable children. It's Latino children. It's African-American children, uh, white, Asian children. It's all of these children and young people that are susceptible. And so it's not uh, there's no prey on any particular group. You know, this is something that if you're vulnerable and if you're in poverty, which is going to affect uh, Latino, African-American in many ways uh, in Texas more, especially the Latino community, uh, that we need to understand that we need to be fighting for all of these children and all of these victims, uh, these kids that are falling through the cracks and then ending up being bought by people that shouldn't be buying them. Right. And and uh, this is a scourge on our state that, that needs to end, guys. Thanks, Dr. Bob. I think this is a really good example of the intersectionality of everything that we do to protect kids in Texas. Thank you so much for calling in. All right. Thanks, guys. Hey, have a great show. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. The next rally day for children at risk is going to be February 14th, where we do an equity rally again in Austin at the Capitol. Feel free to look at our website if you're interested in joining us that day. We would love to see you there. Well, Sharon, I think you're the next expert that's going to come to us and give us a little bit of history about what Children at Risk has been up to in regards to equity. Sure. Um, You know, at Children at Risk, we're just committed to viewing all of our work through a race equity lens because our goal is to improve equity and justice for all Texas kids and families and to find solutions for problems that disproportionately affect communities of color. And we do this by collecting data to identify inequities, collaborating for community-driven solutions, and advocating for equitable systems. Um, this 88th Texas legislative session is no different. There are a lot of measures on our plate um, that have to do with equity and justice. Um, and the first thing I want to highlight for us is the Crown Act. And so what is the Crown Act? What is the Crown <laughs> Act? I'm interested. You know, I've heard a lot of discussion about it. And I know it has something to do with the hair on top of our heads. Yes, yes. The Crown Act is anti-hair discrimination legislation, which has been passed in several places. And we are um, joining forces with uh, many organizations to uh, passed the Crown Act in Texas. So the Crown is actually an acronym in this in this instance. It stands for creating a respectful and open world for natural hair. Did you know that a black woman is 80% more likely to change her hair to meet social norms or expectations at work or school? I can't tell you how many hours I've spent in front of the mirror deciding, is this the right hairdo for this interview or should I change it? Yeah. And so I've had that experience a lot in life myself. Black women are 1.5 times more likely to be sent home or know of a a black woman who was sent home from the workplace because of her hair. This is also an issue for our children in, in, in school. In Texas, there have actually been instances where kids who have braids or what are called dreadlocks or other natural protective styles that have been removed from classroom and, and disciplined because of their hair, not able to graduate with their, with their peers in the ceremony or um, participate in extracurricular activities unless they um, you know, find a, a hairstyle that is not one of those mentioned. One in two black children have experienced this kind of discrimination against their hair as early as five years old, and the impact can last a lifetime. So in this country, um, the law in a lot of states currently doesn't afford protection for race-based hair discrimination, even if that hairstyle is inherent to racial identity. Um, You know, it grows out of your head the way that it grows. And so if you choose not to chemically alter or um, if you choose to wear your hair in an afro, for example, some school districts and some employers actually prohibit you wearing your hair the way that it actually grows out of your head. 
So this means black women can be denied opportunities for employment. Black children are denied opportunities for quality education. They're removed from the educational setting um, with consequences. It means that black children can be denied entry to school or educational opportunities because of the way they wear their natural hair. And this is not okay. It's not okay for Texas kids to have that um, measure of discrimination. I would agree. It's a lot of pressure to think about whether or not somebody is perceiving you in the way that you want to be perceived, mm-hmm. you know, just on the basis of your hair, whether it's the color, the texture, the style, you know. Yeah. So how are we seeing the Crown Act played out? You know, once it's passed into legislation, what does the process kind of look like of making that a real lived experience? I think what it looks like is schools not having um, these type of natural hairstyles prohibited in their codes of conduct so that kids you know, can remain in the educational setting and and learn and not be removed from that or or, um, um, penalized for that. You know, not only is it just the right thing to do educationally, but imagine the impact on someone's psyche to be told that the way your hair grows out of your head is distasteful or inappropriate. Yeah, it's definitely challenging. Um, Are there any personal experiences that you want to share about instances of discrimination because of hair yeah you know growing growing up um I can recall you know having to spend long hours having my hair straightened so that it would be quote-unquote presentable for school or um you know otherwise and then as a young adult um, I had my hair braided um and actually had a supervisor tell me that it was unprofessional and ask me to um have it unbraided and straightened for work um and while, you know, I didn't lose my job, just the, the number that that does on your, on your mental, mental health in the workplace is, is you know, something that, that shouldn't be discounted. Yeah. And not to make light of the situation, but are these same people who are discriminating against the texture of our hair willing to give us a stipend sure. to get our hair done? You <laughs> I know? know I was never offered one. <laughs> I don't know how many people understand the cost of yeah. putting chemicals on your hair or yeah. adding extensions in order to you know, make it seem more refined. Sure. But it is a heavy cost that not every family is able to absorb. And the unspoken thing there is that the standard of hair is that it be straight. Um, And that is, you know, just not achievable uh, in a healthy way for many people. Yes, definitely agree. So it looks like it's almost time for us to figure out what that magic number 28.1% actually means. Um, Any more guesses before we tune in to the date of the day? We have Christine on the line from our Center of Social Measurement and Evaluation at Children at Risk. Christine, are you there? I'm here. Hi. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We're excited to hear from you. All right. We've been trying to figure out what this number 28.1 represents. Can you fill us in? Yeah. So we are talking about... Uh, severe maternal morbidity rate. So both maternal mortality rate and severe maternal morbidity rate has risen significantly in Texas. And non-Hispanic black women are experiencing the highest rate of severe maternal morbidity. So that has actually has to do with that. The non-Hispanic black population in Texas has increased that maternity morbidity rate, increased 28.1% from 2016 to 2020. Wow, that number is um, disheartening. Yeah, so yeah, this is a little bit of a heavy segment. Um, And so I, you know, when we're talking about these terms, I think a lot of these, you know, morbidity, mortality rates are thrown out a lot. Um, So quick definition is maternal mortality is just the death of a person while pregnant. Morbidity is the specific illness or condition. So when we're talking about Texas maternity maternity health report, um, we see that a majority of these deaths are actually preventable. Um, so we're we're looking at um, hemorrhage related deaths, which are the leading cause of severe maternal morbidity, 
and we see this huge discrepancy and disproportionate increase of hemorrhage-related deaths among black women, but every other population in Texas is decreasing. So, yeah, even within um, our health, specifically um, birth rates, we see high discrepancies. So the task for the Texas um, task force called the Maternal Mortality and Morbidity Review Committee of the legislature released their numbers in December, and their report determined that discrimination contributed to 12 percent of these pregnancy-related deaths in 2019. Yeah, um, I mean, among other things, I think we see um, not just discrimination; we see structural inequality. We see the highest rates, um, not just in non-Hispanic black women, but those who are on um, Medicare, um, lower education, um, and then, you know, even varied across the state, north central Texas, southeast Texas, along the Gulf Coast, um, you know, people who higher rates in people living in urban areas. And so we can, we can kind of see the pattern of who are, who's, what's the demographics in those populations? And it's, you know, mostly minority status. Wow. Well, the committee did recommend that the state um, address these persistently high maternal mortality rates, and their top directive was to expand access to comprehensive health services during pregnancy and the year after childbirth. Um, and I know that we are going to talk to um, Hunter Ryan of Change Happens in just a little while, and he's going to talk about um, expanding Medicaid and how that would contribute to um, solving the problem. Yeah, so I won't touch too much on that, but, you know, I think the biggest takeaway you can take is also immediate access to reliable and accurate data. Mm-hmm. Um, we need that to develop strategies with attention to healthcare needs and experiences of black women. You know, the last time we're on the air, we know that report was delayed two months. So ethical and timely release of data, especially race ethnicity data that can be used to advance health equity is important. So when data is not available for marginalized racial groups, their needs aren't considered when policies are made or when resources are allocated, when programs are designed or implemented. Yeah, there's going to be a push this legislative session to um, reestablish the Office of Minority Health Statistics, which would go a long way toward providing that information that's needed to address the problem. Let's get it. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Christine, for helping us to understand that number 28.1%. We look forward to hearing back from you on future sessions. Thanks, Christine. Thank you. Bye. One of those areas that we look into when we're thinking about addressing maternal morbidity is insurance coverage. And so we have Hunter Ryan joining us, who's going to talk to us a little bit about the advocacy taking place on expanding Medicaid. Hunter Ryan, are you there? I am here. Hello. Good afternoon. Can you hey, hear me? It, oh, I can hear you just fine. It's great to great to talk with you, Hunter. Tell us a little bit about your uh, who you are and what your work is right now. All right. Well, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to uh, to be with you here, Sharon. So I work at the organization called Change Happens. We are located here in Houston's Third Ward. We have over thirty three years of working in direct service nonprofit. Uh, we started doing drug prevention, affordable housing. We've since expanded greatly. We now have 18 different programs. We have a lot of youth programming, homeless outreach services, and uh, we're one of the first um, organizations in the Gulf Coast region to be an Affordable Care Act navigator, where we go out to the community and we help uh, empower and educate folks on how they can get access to Obamacare. So um, after 30 years of doing that, we decided to break into the advocacy and policy space, and that's the program that I have the privilege of, of managing called Good Life Outcomes. So Good Life Outcomes, the program that I manage, we are really focused on, on um, reducing the number of uninsured Texans in our state. We know that the state of Texas has a terrible percentage of uninsured folks 
18, 18% of uninsured Texans compared to 8% nationwide. Uh, we also, Texas also has the highest rate of uninsured children at 12%. Now that's more than two times the national average of 5%. And we know that uh, nearly 1.3 million uninsured Texans are vulnerable to chronic financial and health insecurities. And we also know that 83% of these Texans cite lack of coverage due to financial strain. So the program that I'm working on, we are hyper-focused on reducing this terrible aspect of uninsured, the rate of uninsured Texans here in our state. To that end, we are working on Medicaid expansion. That is our strategy Mm -hmm. at the state level. What's that going to take? That's a good question. (laughs) And um, that is going to take, that's going to take, it's going to take a lot of work, a lot of community work, a lot of political organizing, and it's going to take folks to become informed and engaged about this issue. Recent, um, recent data shows that a lot of people just don't know what this issue is. And a lot of folks in rural Texas and a lot of folks in what would, you know, might be understood as um, Republican districts are just unaware about the the material they're un- they're uninformed about this issue um so that is the long that's going to be a long-term goal and that is going to be multi-session work so we're looking if we don't get it this session we're looking at going in the next session, the 89th session sure and if we don't get it then we're committed to going to the 90th session you know hunter but there are we, there are um there's opposition to it and what do you think are some of the key points that those who would oppose Medicaid expansion need to hear and accept? Yeah, you know, and it's true, there is opposition, and we, we believe that the opposition is based on, on poor information. It's an information, uh, it's a lack of comprehensive understanding of the material. So we would say this, we would say that Medicaid expansion, the state of Texas, what they would have to do, the state legislature would just need to accept the federal dollars. Mm-hmm. But let me rephrase that. It's not federal dollars. These are tax dollars. These are federal tax dollars taken from Texans that we can reclaim and put to work in our state. So the Texas legislator would recapture taxes that have already been collected at the federal level, bring those back to our state that would then in turn allow individuals to get access to health care. And the data is clear that when folks have access to health care, they are more productive, they have uh, higher well-being, higher financial stability for their family, they're healthier, they're not going to die premature. The data is clear that when individuals have access to health care, they become healthier overall. They're able to produce more in the economy, they're not out missing, they're not on sick days because they, ha- they don't have access or they have past preventative care. And furthermore, what's really stunning is when you look closer at the data, you see that some of the sectors that have the highest rates of uninsurance are key sectors to the Texas economy. I'm talking construction and food preparation. Mm-hmm. Those two sectors alone of the Texas economy are really high in uninsured rates. So, And those are drivers of our economy. So I would say this. These are federal dollars. No, they're not federal dollars. These are tax dollars from Texans. Bring them back to our state. Put them to work. Get folks access to health care. And what this does is this spurs personal responsibility for individuals to take care of their health. What we see also is that uncompensated care, people who do not have access to health care, they end up costing about $7 billion in uncompensated care to the state of Texas. And this is a negative externality. We see this just gets passed on to individuals, to agencies. This gets passed on to the economy as well. So it, it makes economic sense. It makes financial responsibility, it makes, that, it makes that argument to bring this money back, put it to work, get Texas healthy, keep us healthy, keep our economy moving forward. And, you know, as we, as we all know, Texas is a great bastion of liberty. So we're able to continue doing that if we're able to bring this money back into our state. So that's opposition. And if I could speak just a little bit, I'll talk about what we're looking to do during this session in particular. So that is the long-term strategy of Medicaid expansion, is getting that information out, help, helping folks understand 
the it's a big issue. So helping folks understand the comprehensive nature of it. Before you go on to the legislative session, for those listeners who aren't uh, informed, can you lay out for us what aspects of Medicaid are you're pushing to expand? So yes, the Medicaid. It's a good question. It is a good question because it is kind of confusing. So Medicaid. And CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program, these are public insurance programs. They're under the federal law, and they operate with the state-federal partnership. So um, states have a minimum federal standard to their Medicaid programs they must meet. What this, what, okay, here we go. What I'm saying is the expansion part has to do with household income. So the eligibility, Medicaid expansion would expand eligibility for folks' for folks income. So right now... People who have to get on Medicaid, they're usually relative, they're, they're very poor. Yeah. What Medicaid expansion would do would bring that floor up. So you don't have to, you would still be poor. So this would cover the working poor as it's understood. So we're looking right now, it's um, Medicaid expansion would increase it to 138% of the federal poverty level. This would expand eligibility for folks who are making an individual about $18,000 a year, family of four, about $37,000 a year. This would be the expansion. You These know, the, are the people who right now are poor. in the gap. That term mm-hmm. working poor is so important to expand on because we're not we're talking about people who are doing exactly what we expect them to do, which is to, to get a job and go to work to support their families. But they are still... Um, below the poverty level, even though they are doing their level best. Do you have a rough number, Hunter, of how many children would be captured if we were to make this expansion? You know, for children, let me see here. Let me, um, I, you know, I don't have a number, and I don't want to make something up. But I do know that um, overall, it would be we would get to probably about nine hundred thousand individuals. 958, so almost a million Texans would be eligible. I don't know how many of them are are children in particular, but, uh, yeah, the data shows about just just shy of a million Texans would become eligible. That's a huge huge impact. impact. (laughs) And, you know, we were just talking um, about maternal, maternal and infant mortality rates in Texas. And so what do you think the impact on uh, Medicaid expansion would have on those factors? So something that's attainable and accessible, this legislative session, as we speak right now, in in these moments, we believe and we are committed to helping expand Medicaid to 12 months postpartum for new moms. Now, this is an issue that goes across Democrat. It goes across the Republican-Democrat divide. It goes across rural and urban divide, and it goes across pro-life and pro-choice divide. This is a point. This is a piece of legislation that can move forward this session, and we know that there's champions in the legislature who do this. So, speaking in particular, Sean Theory, Tony Rose, Sophronia Thompson. Those are the ones that come to mind. Those are some. Those are some representatives who have championed this issue about maternal health. So expanding Medicaid expansion to 12 months postpartum. And last session, the House of Representatives did this. They got 12 months. They went to the Senate, and the Senate cut it to six. So we know that Dade Phelan, the Speaker of the House, Republican, he has listed this as a priority for him. And we know that one of the biggest pro-life groups here in Texas, Texas Right to Life, they are committed to this as well. The Texas Tribune just last week, they two weeks ago, and a long, extensive article about the issue of maternal crisis in rural East Texas. And we know that this is also a major issue for the urban women in, you know, Houston and Dallas, San Antonio. We know so this is an issue, as they say, this is a big tent coalition building issue. Um, and we we believe, deeply believe that this is accessible in the session. And then this will lead further to the Medicaid expansion down the road. But first, first things first, what's attainable in this session, 12 months extension for uh, new moms. All right, Hunter, we thank you so much for bringing that. We know we could talk for another 10 minutes about this <laughs> issue and just the intricate details and how it could bring impact. But we want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope to hear from you again later. All of these yes. lines all right, Sharon, do you want to introduce us to the next sure. guest? I'm happy to welcome my friend Joe Herbert, who's an attorney at law and founder of Defend. And how you doing, Joe? 
I'm great, and you? Thanks for calling. I'm doing great. I'm, I'm so excited to hear about Defend. Can you tell us what that what Defend is and what Defend is doing for kids in Texas? Okay, so Defend is an acronym. It's uh, we're nailing down the precise acronym, but it's uh, dedicated to empowering the futures of economically neglected first-time nonviolent offenders. And what we do primarily, or as a first step, is we raise money to pay for lawyers for first-time nonviolent offenders uh, because a good lawyer is going to be the most determinative uh, factor in whether a defendant gets a good outcome in a criminal case. Mm -hmm. But we also want to leverage that to do education uh, bring awareness to the problem, get more people involved, but especially educate uh, the kids who haven't gotten in trouble yet. Tell us a bit about how um, the community kind of views bad behavior in poor communities. Well, you know, we think it's, it's a, a cultural gap. Um, you know, in poor communities, we're taught, for instance, if somebody hits you, hit you, hit them back, and these different factors, and it ends up making certain kids think that behavior is not as bad as the justice system perceives it. So a kid will get in, he'll do something he may not think is wrong at all, or he may think it's wrong, but it's not that bad, but in the eyes of the law and in the eyes of juries, it's much worse. So we need to, you know, try to bridge that gap. And that's just one, mm -hmm. a very small example of the challenges of uh, different cultures in the criminal justice system. And then what are, what are you, what do you think are some of the challenges of how the justice system views kids that are in poverty? For, for example, um, you know, there there are some judges who would look at kids maybe who are not kids of color and think that that's knucklehead behavior. And then a, a child of color comes before a, a, a judge for the same behaviors, and that's viewed as something that, that is uh, needing uh, long-term consequences. Yeah, I mean, uh, the one uh, succinct way to state it is when children of color go before the justice system, or first of all, when white children go before the justice system, it's a good chance that they're going to be viewed as a child with a problem. Mm -hmm. When a person of color goes before the justice system, they're viewed as a problem. They're viewed as I mean, the problem. A, the problem is a problem. We got, we got to get rid of this, mm -hmm. you know. We got to address this problem and get rid of it, and that leads to you know very wide disparities in the way kids are uh, dealt with. Right. It's when is a child a child? <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. What? What's yeah, the? Or what? even an adult. I mean, there. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of these. A lot of times the DA, the judge, doesn't even see them as human, let alone a sure. child. Yeah, and th that speaks to the difficulty of, some, of, of how to get prosecutors to both recognize and understand community norms, but also to view children um, with equal problems as being uh, equal. Right. And from my perspective... And <laughs> You know, for instance, I know you do great work, Sharon. I know your organization does great work. I think most people who do the kind of work that you and I do, they have faith that the system can be changed. Sure. I'm more focused on helping one person at a time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just don't have a lot of faith in changing the system, but I do believe we can look at one kid that's in danger and do something for that kid for sure and mm -hmm. and clearly and know, i think it, it takes it, both of those perspectives to get to absolutely get, get done different people have different callings for sure joe my name's naomi i work with sharon over in the early childhood department 
I'm curious to know from your perspective, what are some of the harder uh, cases for you to try for youth of color? You know, where are you seeing the biggest discrepancy between the the penalties or rehabilitation efforts for white children as opposed to Latinx or African-American children? Well, I think the low-hanging fruit is when it's sort of a nonviolent offense or, you know, nobody's gotten hurt that bad and and, uh, um, the kid has, there's some evidence that he'll benefit from a second chance the hard cases is when a kid, for instance, I have a case where a kid create, uh, committed a crime and one of his co-defendants, alleged co-defendants, had a gun. And that's another thing, you know, in our community nowadays, a gun is not seen as big a deal as it used to be. And so in a case like that, the court wants to give these kids 30 years. That's and a lifetime. And it's very difficult to, um, it, it is very difficult to advocate, advocate for those kids. Sure. Yeah, I hear the challenges there, Joe. If you would have, if you would have one idea about what policy we could move forward to give you a little support, what would you recommend? Well, this actually crystallizes I was getting as I was preparing for this show, if you had what I'm referring to as a cultural uh, acclimation program, where when a kid was um, convicted of an offense, you divert him or her, and it, it would be a very aggressive discipline program with a lot of, quote-unquote, punishment involved. And the focus would be to get them to understand that there are other cultures that you have to take into account when you decide what serious behavior. And at the end of that process, they, would, they wouldn't have a record. You know, they would be yeah. diverted out of the criminal justice system, but they would um, they will have paid a debt to society and they could move forward. Well, I can't wait to hear more about your thoughts. And I know you're going to be a guest on our State of Black Children um, panel on juvenile justice. And so I look forward to hearing you on that panel and hearing what else we can learn about and do for kids of color. Well, I appreciate your time and I'm excited to continue to work with you guys. Thank you so much. All right. This is my favorite song of the hour. Stars at night are big and bright. Where? Deep in the heart of Texas. It's hard to refrain from clapping. <laughs> right. <laughs> I fell right back into my kindergarten class with that music. <laughs> I'm not even a Texan and that one gets me. <laughs> All right, we've got one last guest on the segment today. Uh, her name is Trina McReynolds Bailey. She's going to talk to us about helping teens and young adults navigating legal issues. Trina, how are you doing today? I'm doing just fine. How are you? I'm doing well. My name's Naomi. I'm here with Sharon. Hi, Trina. Would love Hi, to hear Sharon. about this book that you've written. Well, it, uh, the book is titled Turning 18. It's a survival guide for new adults. And it basically is, is the culmination of about 20 years of, of 25 plus years experience, actually, where I, my idea of family law is helping my friends and family with their legal issues. And over the years, people have contacted me and they've said, oh, my goodness, my son, this is real life example, my son and his girlfriend bought a car and now they've broken up and he's made all the payments for the car and um, she wants the car back because it's in her name. That's a big one. (laughs) And those are the kind of things where new adults kind of don't think ahead and they find themselves in these legal dilemmas that they've never really thought through. You know, we were talking to Joe Herbert a few minutes ago, and we were, we were talking about how um, kids of color that find themselves at, at a crossroads with the legal system or the, or the justice system um, sometimes have look at things through a different cultural lens. And um, what are your thoughts on how um, young adults of color 
navigate some of these issues uh, when they are attempting to adults and how are they, they viewed by the legal system? You know, I think they have a greater challenge in, in a lot of respects. Um, if you look at the statistics about the percentage of attorneys that are African-American, for instance, it's less than 5% of all lawyers in the country. So that means that access and contact and family members that they may turn to are really, really limited. And so oftentimes they don't have a resource. And I think that's what I tried to do with this book is provide a resource that um, young people don't have, um, especially if they don't have um, a family that has surrounded them with people that, you know, they can contact in case they have a, a legal dilemma or a problem. Sounds good. Uh, which which avenues do you feel are the best for getting this information into the hands of our community? Um, I think it, it has to be a, a multi-pronged approach, you know, because the reality is we don't know where we're going to touch kids. Um, I think making sure teachers, especially at the high school level, um, can be a resource for, for teens, because that's often the, 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 uh, the first line, right? If it's not your parents, it's not your family members, it's the teachers that you have contact with uh, almost every day. I think the next resource are support organizations, you know, um, Big Brothers, Big Sisters. Um, a lot of uh, organizations support young people um, who are more vulnerable than, than most kids that, um, that our children may encounter. So I think that starting there and starting to make sure they have inf- enough information because I think a lot of times these kids don't know what they don't know. You know, it's and interesting. So we, we teach we teach kids the, you know, it's important to know the Pythagorean theorem. It's important to know your history. Uh, it's important to know so many things, but, you know, adulting sometimes falls between the cracks. So I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that about, um, you know, empowering kids as early as early as high school really probably junior high about some of the uh, common sense situations that they will face including you know the one you mentioned earlier about you know buying property with someone yeah well buying property with somebody and what happens in junior high i think that's an excellent time frame for introducing um, all the issues that come with driving a car yeah because a lot of young people for instance don't know that they may not be the legal owners of the car but if they loan the car to a friend who doesn't have a driver's license they could put their parents on the hook for negligent entrustment. Do you have any so, mention in your book about social media and the um, legal pitfalls that that I actually do because yeah. I I think honestly that that's in the, um I I had to split this but there's so much information it was so dense that it, that is in uh, the second book. Mm-hmm. Um, but I speak specifically of, of situations where young people um, are sharing too much information and the ramifications that can come of that, such as um, having a, an admission from a college withdrawn, um, being accused of stalking, um, publishing information in social media that could be considered... Um, child pornography because the subject of pictures could be a, a minor. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of things, again, that I don't think, I don't think kids do because they're intending. For instance, you know, sharing a, um, a, a photo that, uh, of a scantily clad girl, they may not think anything of it because she's in the same grade, but it makes a big difference if you're an adult when you share that picture than if you're a minor as well. Yeah, so what I'm hearing from you is there's lots of responsibilities that are children and youth are getting entangled in that they aren't quite aware of the consequences. Would you agree? Absolutely. I think it's, it's just a different day and age. Um, we, it, by necessity, it used to be, you know, when my parents got married, my mom was 18, my dad was 21. And now to think about the notion of 18 and 21 year olds getting married, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and so I think it, it's, it's, Part of it is that we, we want to give kids an opportunity to experiment, to encounter different situations, but to do it in a protective way where they can learn and not be, you know, stimulated by the fact that mom and dad are making all the decisions for them and mowing mm-hmm. down all the obstacles. So, Instead, it's an opportunity to kind of bridge that learning and to do it in a, a logical, supportive way so kids still get the lessons they need in life, Mm -hmm. um, but they don't make a mistake that changes the entire trajectory of their lives. 
Well, I know that you, uh, you know, are an attorney and that you've seen, you know, in your in your line of work, these issues that young adults get involved with. But what is your, what is your other motivation? Um, I, and I suspect you have three for this book. Well, I'm a mom, first of all. Practicing law for a couple of decades, that's what I did. Who I am is really a mom. and That's what I meant by the three. (laughs) (laughs) And I have a lot of empathy. And because of my kids' interactions and their relationships, thankfully they know people from all different walks of life. And um, I understand that not everybody comes from a home um, where there's a mom who's a lawyer or um, a professional who has resources. And, and, you know, I was walking out of soccer practice the other day, and I saw a, a young man who's driving a car for the first time who was hit in the parking lot. He didn't know what to do. Oh, wow. And it's not that he, he, he was, I mean, he's obviously entrusted with a driver's license. He can drive a car to and fro, but giving our kids enough information to where they can handle situations that may come up like that and knowing what to do if they do, that, that was my real motivation sure. for writing this book. Well, we're looking forward to seeing your book reach the community over these next couple of years. As our last guest of the show today, Trina, we have fun five questions for you. Are you ready? I'm ready. What was your favorite book to read as a child? You know, um, is it a fun book or just a a book that I... I Any book you can think of. Um, Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Ooh, mine too. (laughs) <laughs> okay. What did you want to be when growing up? I actually wanted to be a, a diplomat, a foreign service officer, which I did for a hot minute. Okay. Um, such, a, <laughs> such a lofty goal. Right. <laughs> You've always been ambitious. Sweet or salty? Sweet or salty? Oh, uh, I'm going to say sweet. Do you have a comfort movie, TV show, or book? Um, I love watching It's a Wonderful Life. It reminds me of my mother, and it was her favorite movie when uh, when she was alive. And what's your number one motivation for getting out the bed in the morning? Um, trying to make the best of each day because every day is a blessing. That's beautiful. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing a little piece of your life and testimony with us. We thank you for joining us today. Folks, that wraps up Growing Up in America for this segment. We thank you so much for listening to us. We're back again next Wednesday from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. Central Standard Time. We, My name's Naomi. I'm Sharon. And we thank you for tuning in. And why do we do this? For, for children. children. KPFT Houston, 90.1 FM and FM HD1. Community Media 90.1 KPFT Houston has brought its listeners nearly 53 years of commercial-free content to your friends and neighbors. We recently launched a new studio home located at 4504 Caroline Street in the Upper Museum District. We serve the community in many ways, and in return, they have provided the support for the idea that we need a local voice. Today, we use that voice to reach out to you and ask that you bring canned and other shelf-stable food to supply the Mana Food Pantry of Third Ward, located just blocks from here. We will be collecting food at our community media station from Wednesday, January 25th through Sunday, January 29th. We request that you bring a donation of a cash or food contribution of at least $20 to help those in need in our own community. Let's work together to stamp out hunger in our own backyard. Papa, why can't we telegraph while riding a horse? Son, there ain't no one to blame but Jeffro. He was riding old Betsy the Stallion, tip-tapping away at his telegraph, when blam, ran right into the side of the saloon. Well, if Jeffro can't do it, neither should you. Don't text and drive. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Adopt U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo GOAT, G-O-A-T Acronym Stands for Greatest of All Time As in Spaghetti Sandwiches for Dinner They're my fave 
Dad, you're the GOAT. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. Community Media 90.1 KPFT Houston has brought its listeners nearly 53 years of commercial-free content from your own friends and neighbors. We recently launched a new studio home located at 